You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our sermon this afternoon, I'd invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53. We'll read the verses 1 through 6 there. Isaiah 53 is one of the many passages in the Old Testament that prophesy about the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The particular emphasis of this passage is that He is indeed our Savior from sin. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's turn now to the New Testament, to 1 John 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word has no place in our lives. Dear children, I write this to you that you will not, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Begin there, a new section where we are in the Heidelberg Catechism is is explaining the Apostles' Creed and the contents thereof, the contents of our faith. And we come to the section of the Creed regarding God the Son, and our redemption. Lord's Day 11. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because He saves us from all our sins. And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of Him in words... They, in fact, deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior 
must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we, as human beings, are creatures whose hearts long for a Savior. Regardless of who you are, where you are, what's happened to you, if you are a human being, your heart longs for a Savior. If you understand this truth, you will see it played out before your eyes time and time and time again. You may have heard about it. A man named Steve Jobs passed away on October 5th, 2011. He was the CEO of Apple Corporation, one of the most successful companies in the world, and he himself was one of the most recognizable business leaders on the planet. Now, after his death, many articles and remembrances of him were written. The ones, Many of the ones that were written used the strongest and, and highest accolades to describe him. One article that I read stated about him, he may have been the most important man to walk the face of the earth in his lifetime. Those are very strong words. Those are very strong words, but I doubt that those were even the most worshipful words that were expressed about him. This is the kind of devotion that was shown to Steve Jobs, both in his life, but especially in his death. I don't know if anyone went so far as to outright call him a savior. I didn't read that. But it was obvious from what everyone was saying and writing that many people thought of him as one, treated him as one, or even unconsciously acted toward him as one. Now this kind of behavior toward a person a thing or even an idea, is nothing new. There have been and there continues to be and there will be until the last day pretenders to the title of Savior. Whether they put that on themselves or whether others, as in the case of Steve Jobs, put that on them. Pretenders of whom sinful hearts are only too ready to adore and worship. But God's word is very clear that there is in fact only one Savior. More than that, the Bible is clear that Jesus Christ must be, cannot but be, our only Savior. Since Jesus is the only Savior, He must be our only Savior. That's our theme this afternoon, and that's the truth that comes to us in Lord's Day 11. Since Jesus is the only Savior, He must be our only Savior. We'll consider what He saves us from. It's important to understand our Savior Jesus and why He is the only Savior. What He saves us from, 
And also, what He saves us for. What is the result of having the Lord Jesus as your Savior? And also, conversely, what's the result of having the wrong Savior? Since Jesus is the only Savior, He must be our only Savior. So although God's Word is clear that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, He is not the only one to have ever assumed the title. In fact, so-called saviors are common. So-called saviors are so common, in fact, that we can talk about them in two different categories. In order to understand so-called saviors, we see that there are ones who call themselves savior, who, who take the role upon themselves or assume that role in the minds of others. And there are other ones that are more subtle in the way that they control our lives. We might call them formal saviors and functional saviors. Formal and functional. What's a formal savior? Well, a formal savior is someone or something that looks like a savior. That that you can say, that person, that's a savior. Someone who, who talks and acts like a savior. Someone who might even call themselves savior, or at least that everyone around them calls a savior. If you want to see an example of a, of a formal kind of savior, then you need to look no further than the area of politics. Of politics. You look at the realm of political leaders. Especially in highly political contexts, political leaders are often presented as the saviors of their time. For whatever reason, in Canada... This doesn't seem to be such a big thing, especially at our time with our present leader. But if you look at what's going on south of the border, and especially what goes on during any presidential election, then you'll see this idea of formal savior. You'll see this idea of of language that's used of this one person, which is saving. This one person will save us from whatever it is that ails us. If you bring this to the extreme, you can look at many political leaders around the world and throughout history. If you look to North Korea, Kim Jong-il, the leader in North Korea, the dear leader, as he's called, is essentially worshipped. And he promotes that in that country. If you look historically, if you look what was going on in Germany, when Hitler rose to power, He was presented and he assumed himself into the role of savior for that country. If you go back further to the times of the New Testament, and you can look at the Roman emperors, who were in fact called Lord and Savior. First it was by others giving them that title, and they quite liked it, so they assumed it for themselves and demanded that everyone in their empire call them Lord and Savior. So that's a formal savior. A functional savior is a a little different. A functional savior is someone or something that in the way that you connect with them, or the way that you interact with them, you emotionally connect with them, you express a relationship of savior. You may not call them savior, they might not call themselves savior, but you look to them for your salvation. A couple examples of that. Think of, think of a boyfriend 
or girlfriend for an insecure high schooler. There's some sort of problem for that insecure person in high school, and this boyfriend or this girlfriend or this relationship is going to solve all their problems. Or think about the bank account of a financially worried father. His family needs to meet and ends meet. There are certain things he needs to get, and so the bank account and the balance thereof becomes his savior. Think of the children of a domestically focused mother. All of her attention, all of her time, all of her hopes and dreams and expectations go into these children. These are functional saviors. These are things that we look to for our salvation, for our satisfaction, for the way out of our problems. And that is exactly, in fact, the thing to ask of any so-called savior, formal or functional. The question is, what are they saving you from? The author of the article that I read about Steve Jobs suggested that without Steve Jobs, we would have continued to have clunky, ugly technology and devices that we have to adapt to rather than that adapt to us and serve our needs. That was and is, I suppose, the big problem that many see. What the formal saviors save us from is usually quite easy to figure out. In fact, if they're successful at being a formal kind of savior, they'll tell you exactly what your problem is and how they're going to fix it. The most successful politicians are the ones who do the best job of that, telling you what your problem is and telling you how they're going to fix it. I don't have a job. They'll give you a job. That's how it works. The functional saviors on the other side are less easy to figure out, more subtle, and definitely more dangerous, especially for Christians. Because if someone comes along with a Messiah complex, someone comes along claiming to be the Savior, using language that sometimes is biblical in the way that they speak about themselves or others speak about them, then we as Christians quickly become uncomfortable. If they start appropriating that kind of language about salvation and Savior to themselves, we're quick to put a red flag and be on our guard about anyone like that. But the functional Saviors are different. They don't announce themselves. They use subtle marketing. They they vary tremendously. And they have a way of of figuring out first, what is your heart's desire? And only then meeting that need and promising to provide. Also, functional saviors don't mind if you confess another savior alongside with them as long as where you actually place your trust, your attention, your emotion, your worship is with them. You realize, as we're talking about these saviors, this is a massively spiritual thing that is at work here. We're not talking just about who is going to help us. We're talking about where our worship and our adoration is. One way that we can talk about functional saviors is to group them into the categories or to understand them in terms of isms. You've heard of that expression, isms, uh, materialism, statism, scientism. 
Many of these functional saviors will work in those categories. Let me tell you what I, what I mean here. If wealth is our savior, we call that materialism. If, if science is our savior, we call that scientism. If the state is our savior, if we look to the state to save us, to meet all our needs, we call that statism. Well, every savior, every ism that's out there identifies for you a problem that they are going to solve. Remember, the question to ask of any so-called savior is, what are you saving me from? So with statism, especially in our country, the problem is, the perceived problem is that we don't have enough social programs to care for every single person in our country. And so we need the government to do more, to take over more, so that they can help and everyone can be looked after. With scientism, our problem is that we fear what we don't understand, and so science will explain to us everything, and so we won't need to fear. We can just trust in science. We can define other kind of isms, healthism. Our problem is that you aren't healthy, or you're getting old, and health is harder to hang on to, and so all of your attention must be focused on staying healthy. Or entertainmentism. The problem is that we're just bored. We're not sensually engaged enough. And so, we need more. Or perhaps, and maybe you've never heard of this one, but partyism. That's where you've resigned to the fact that your life is full of problems, a whole bunch of things that you're never going to deal with, but once or twice a week, you can just forget about it and have a good time and then deal with the consequences the next day. Or we could... Continue to add more. Perhaps we want to talk about internetism or Facebookism. The problem is you might miss something. And so you're constantly trying to be in the know. There are many things that compete for our attention, our trust, our devotion. And believers have struggled with this always. We do today. They have in the past. What the Lord's Day 11 references is putting our trust in question and answer 30, putting our trust in saints. Now, this is not something that we struggle with, but they certainly did. Struggled with putting their, their trust in saints because they thought Jesus was too high, too far to meet their needs. And so they needed to put their trust in something lower as a way to get to the Lord Jesus. And we certainly struggle with these functional saviors, with these isms today. What are they for you? What are they for you? Where is your trust focused? What problems do you perceive in your life? Perhaps in our context, we struggle with workism, where we say to ourselves, I might be lazy, I might not earn enough money, I might not measure up to others in our community, and so I need to work and work and work and work some more so that I can earn my status. Or, for, or perhaps we struggle with the problem of security-ism, where we think that we and our children, our families, might be exposed to some of the evils that are out there, and so everything becomes focused on creating this security blanket around us so that nothing can affect us. Or perhaps, somewhat ironically, we struggle with perfectionism. Although I confess that I'm a savior, no one should actually be able to tell that about me 
Because I can think of at least 50 other people in our church who appear to live perfect and perfectly happy lives. But we confess one thing, but we live another. We confess one Savior, functionally, there's another one. And we could go on and on for this for quite a while, but you see the pattern. There is a need, there is a perceived problem, and both the formal and the functional Saviors promise a solution to that problem. Now let's turn our attention to Lord's Day 11. Consider what God's Word says about this issue of Saviors. Lord's Day 11 asks a pertinent question, why is the Son of God called Jesus, which means Savior? There's a claim being made here, and it's an astounding claim. Remember, we talked about formal saviors. Well, here is the formal Savior par excellence, the, the most Savior person that has ever walked on this earth. The one who received accolades that are astounding. People spoke of him as God himself. He is so much a Savior that His very name means Savior. And He was born into that role. It was prophesied about Him. Matthew Matthew 1, verse 21 teaches this. The angel visited Joseph before the Lord Jesus was born, and he instructed Joseph to name the child that Mary would bear Jesus. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. He was also the Savior and the only Savior promised in the Old Testament. God promised in Genesis 3 that the seed of a woman, a child coming from Eve, would crush the head of the serpent. In Isaiah 53, along with many other passages in Isaiah, they speak clearly about this man, this suffering servant who will make atonement for sins. Jesus Christ is the only one acknowledged as Savior in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. Romans 10, you must believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And many other passages that speak about the Lord Jesus as Savior to the exclusion of all others. Unequivocally, unilaterally, unarguably, Jesus is the Savior. Now the question is, from what? If Jesus is the ultimate Savior, then He must save us from the ultimate problem. Well, if we return for a moment to what the angel said about Him in that categorical statement, then it becomes clear. You are to name Him Jesus Because he will save his people from their sins. The problem is sin. That's clearly also the message of Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In our New Testament reading from John, John gets, first John, John gets right down to the root of the problem and its solution when he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins 
and purify us from all unrighteousness. What other evidence of this fact that our problem is sin do we need? God's Word is perfectly clear. If you go back to the beginning, in fact, Genesis 3, then you will see that sin is not only our greatest problem, it is also our first problem. The Bible teaches, illustrates, and impresses on us repeatedly the fact that for all humanity, for all humanity, there is but one problem, and that's sin. Now let's reflect on that for a moment. There are many functional saviors, so-called saviors, that tell us that there are all sorts of problems out there. And sometimes, they have a point. Saying that sin is our greatest problem isn't saying that sin is our only problem. Can we say that political injustice isn't a problem, that crimes committed aren't problems, that ill health, chronic diseases, natural disasters, feelings of hopelessness, that those aren't problems? No, those are problems. We can't deny that. But saying that sin is our greatest problem is saying that sin is the root of all problems, all real problems in the world. See, the things that we listed, it's not as though those aren't problems, but those aren't the root. To deal with those problems is only to deal with the the surface, the superficial. But there's something that sits underneath that's more fundamental. In fact, the Bible reveals to us that that even where that problem begins is deep, deep, deep within us, ourselves, deep within our own hearts. It's only if we know the deepest root of the trouble in our lives and in this world, it's only when we realize that deepest root that we can know the greatest Savior. A superficial problem means a superficial savior that's fixed with superficial solutions. But God's word reveals our deepest problem, our sin. It reveals to us the ultimate savior, Jesus Christ. And gives to us a solution that can never be destroyed, never be compromised. solution of God's one and only Son, our only Savior, Jesus Christ. So He is the only Savior, and He saves us from what ails us, sin. That's what we're saved from. What are we saved for? You see, there's another element of these so-called saviors that we've been talking about, and that is that they not only promise to deliver you from something, a life of boredom, a life of obscurity, a life of poverty, but they also promise to give you something as well. Endless sensual pleasures, or meaningfulness, or wealth. At least, that's what they promise on the surface. But how do these saviors promise to give these things for you? How, if you follow the the savior of wealth, are you going to gain 
wealth. How are, if you're afraid of a life of obscurity, how are you going to have meaningfulness? If you're afraid of a life of poverty, how are you going to have what you need? How do you actually attain all of these things? You must work. You must work at them. You must work at them. None of these are going to come easy. None of these are going to come cheap to you. You're going to have to work and work and continue to work at gaining these things. To stop pursuing them is to fail. To rest is to falter. You have it one moment and it's gone the next. There is no security with a false savior. What all these so-called saviors promise to give you is a life of striving, of working, of earning. You can't rest in these so-called saviors. You try to trust in them, but they end up putting all the onus on you, and you end up having to trust in yourself. There's only one savior that you can absolutely rest in. There's only one savior that saves you for a secure eternity. He's the Savior that you must rest in, for there's no other way for Him to save you. The way that He accomplished salvation was by doing it for all of us, doing what was necessary to accomplish salvation. We were captive to sin and striving against it, but Jesus Christ died, came to this world, died on the cross, removed our sin. 1 John 2 verse 2 says Christ is the atoning sacrifice for sins. Nothing you can do can take it away. No other Savior can remove its consequences. No one else has ever taken away your sin. Only Jesus is the Savior from sin. He's the only Savior. And He needs to be. In every moment... Every day, in every circumstance, He needs to be your Savior too. That's the thrust of question 30 in Lord's Day 11. When it speaks about seeking your salvation in saints or yourself or anywhere else, it means you're not resting in Jesus Christ. It means that in one way or another, you're striving, you're working, you're earning. It's all about you. The way that Jesus saves is when it's all about Him. When we rest in Him. There's something else that we're saved for. And we can understand it by asking this fundamental question. Why is sin our greatest problem? Is it because sin is self-destructive? Which it is. Is it because sin is contrary to God's law? Which it is. Is it because God hates sin? Which he does. Why is sin our greatest problem? Well, ultimately, because sin is rebellion against God. Sin separates us from God. In sin, we reject God. We cast Him off. We turn from Him. Sin separates us from God. Therefore, to be saved from your sins, 
to have them effectively and eternally wiped away through the blood of Jesus Christ means that you are no longer separated from God. It means that God's wrath no longer remains on you as a a treasonous member of His kingdom. No, it means that you're accepted. You're no longer a child who has run away. You're a child whom God has brought back to His family. You are holy fully, completely, and unchangeably, not only adopted into God's kingdom through the work of Jesus Christ, not only adopted into God's home, but into His family. And not only into God's family, but through the work of Jesus Christ, by casting off your sins completely, you are adopted into the very heart of God. The only Savior, Jesus, brings us past a technological utopia, deeper than a dream world of peace, beyond all the pleasures that money can buy, over a superficial sense of security, and into a relationship of deepest affection and a profound sense of belonging. Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. He casts them away as far as east is from the west, so they are remembered no longer. And He carries us right to the heart, right to the bosom of our eternal Father. He is the only Savior who can do that. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.